The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Entry into Jerusalem. And he's presenting himself ultimately to the people of Israel as their king, as their promised Messiah, as the one who would, who would be their ruler at some level. Right? So in Matthew 21, 4 and 5, it says this. Uh, Matthew writes, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. Um, so Palm Sunday is a lot about Jesus as the Messiah, who is king. Now, of course, we know that as the uh, events of the week unfold, and even as in the, in the Lent reading today, we saw that um, they did not ultimately receive Jesus as king. In fact, they rejected him as their king, and uh, a few short days later, crucified him. Uh, but he, the writer of Hebrews is very clear that after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he is seated on the throne as a king, right? The right hand of majesty, the throne of David as, as a king. Um, so even though they rejected him, Jesus still fulfills that role. And, and a lot of what Palm Sunday about is, is uh, recognizing uh, that Jesus was our king who died for us. Um, so this idea, and this idea came out of the Old Testament for sure, that the Messiah would be a king. And so... It's significant that Jesus uh, was born to the royal family of David, right? He had blood connection to David's line, uh, and he uh, had a, a claim to that throne because of his connection with David. Um, but we see here a different picture, and in Hebrews 5, it, it describes him not only as a king, but specifically as a priest, and in fact, Jesus uh, is the package deal. He is a Messiah who is prophet, priest, and king. Um, so this was, this was a, a, a new thing for, for the Israelites. And in fact, um, many Jews in Jesus' day believed there would be two Messiahs. And the reason for that is because they couldn't picture a, a king who could also be a priest. And when they saw that... The Messiah would fulfill in some way both of these roles. They were confused, and so sometimes they would talk about two Messiahs coming, one who would be the king and one who would fulfill the role as priest. But the writer of Hebrews is very clear that Jesus uh, brings both of those things together as, as priest and king. Uh, so um, what that means for us is that Jesus is a leader, a king, who we can follow because he understands and cares deeply. Right? He's, he's, he is the ultimate and perfect leader. Um, so, uh, as we look at, at Hebrews chapter 5 and unpack this a bit, um, he starts off this passage by giving two main qualifications of a priest. Right, uh, And so, uh, let me just reread a, a little bit. He says, uh, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does those of the people. Um, so in those verses, what he's doing is, is giving us a, a brief description of the qualifications of a high priest. Uh, not, not about Jesus, but just the high priest in general. And there were basically two qualifications. The first is that they had to be appointed by God. Right? Being a priest was not something that you could choose to do on your own. It was very explicit and very clear in the Old Testament that the high priest was chosen and appointed by God. And specifically, God chose Aaron and his descendants. So this was not a career path that anybody in Israel could just choose. Like if you were a little boy, they didn't say, well, I'd like to be a fireman or the high priest. Right? It worked that way. Right? You were either born into it, into the chosen family of Aaron, or you weren't. And it didn't matter how much school you went to. It didn't, it didn't matter if you like, got straight A's on, on like high priest in, in seminary. Right? It didn't work that way. It didn't matter how, how qualified you thought you were. You only got that position if you were called and appointed to it by God. Um, so that was the first qualification. The second qualification is uh, you had to deal gently with the weak. And I love that description. He said the high priest is one who can deal gently with the wayward and ignorant uh, because he himself is beset with weakness. Uh, what a picture. And it's a little bit surprising. Um, we, we might expect that, uh, that, um, that the priest would be qualified for this job because he's like sinless. Because of his great moral character, right? Because he's excelled and he's living a holy, God godly lifestyle that sets him apart from the rest. But actually the writer of Hebrews says, no, that actually is not what qualifies him to be a high priest. What qualifies him is that he's one of us. He's a mess up just like everybody else, right? He was human. Uh, God did not send an angel to be high priest. He sent uh, one of them, and he picked somebody out. And, and as we know, Aaron from the very beginning, first day on the job, what does he do? He creates a golden calf that they can worship. Okay, that doesn't look really great on your resume if you're a high priest. Um, he failed. Uh, he he messed up. And, and as he says, they they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins because they were sinful. They failed too. But he says that was a good thing because it enabled them, it gave them a capacity to deal gently with everybody else when they messed up. Right? Kind of going back to that picture of a leader. We don't want leaders who tower over us and constantly hurl insults and condemnation. Like, why can't you be as perfect as I am? Right? The whole high priest wasn't supposed to be like that. They were supposed to be one who could sympathize, who could understand, who could share in um, the weaknesses of of those they ministered to. Uh, and I do think it's a great picture of, of good leadership. Right? A good leader is not, is, not, is not somebody who's above everybody else and free from failures and struggles. Now, of course, uh, a good leader should not be mostly a failure. Right? It doesn't mean that that's all they do is mess up. But uh, leaders are human. right? We are all human. And we struggle with our own problems. And one of, the, one of the important characteristics of a good leader is somebody who can be honest about their struggles and their failures. Because it gives them the capacity to deal gently with others when they mess up and make mistakes and fail. Um, 
Now, of course, there are those who would argue this does not make a good leader. Right? Leaders should be egomaniacs who just walk over people. And that is a certain style of leadership. But it's not the biblical style, and it's not who Jesus was. And it's certainly not what we're called to be. Um, a good leader uh, is honest about their failures and can identify with the weaknesses of others. Um, so, uh, so those are the qualifications. Uh, appointed by God and able to deal gently with others because of their own weakness and struggles and, and failures. So this brings up a question, and he's going to deal with answering this question in the second half. And the question is this. Uh, if this is what qualifies somebody to be a, a, a high priest, does Jesus meet the qualifications? Is Jesus a fit and qualified candidate for the position of high priest? Or in this case, great high priest. Not just an everyday high priest, but the great high priest. And so he's going to um, answer those questions. And there's two problems. First of all, uh, if, if God did appoint Jesus as high priest, how did he appoint him when he's not a descendant of Aaron? Right? He's not in the select chosen group to be a priest, so how could God choose Jesus to be uh, the high priest? Right? And on the part of uh, dealing gently with the weak, uh, the problem here is how can Jesus identify with the weak and struggling human beings since he is without sin? Right? He's not the high priest who has to offer sacrifices for his own sin. Right? So how can Jesus be a priest who can deal gently with us since he never sinned and he never failed? Right? Those are the two questions that he wants to deal with and answer in the remaining verses. So let's, let's look at these. First, is Jesus qualified? Was he appointed by God as high priest? Verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. Jesus didn't choose this for himself. But he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, Jesus did not seek this position on his own, but he was clearly appointed to this office by the Father. But what was the basis of his appointment? Was he appointed because he was the descendant of Aaron? No. Uh, the Gospels are very clear. He was a descendant of David. Uh, he had no <coughs> um, connections with the Levitical or priestly family of Aaron. There was no blood tie and blood connection there. Uh, his claim to the throne of David was based on blood. But that's not the basis of his appointment as high priest. Uh, to, to back up his case, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2.7. He says, today you are my son. I'm sorry, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the second time that the author has quoted this verse. He quoted it also in chapter 1, verse 5. And it's significant for two reasons. First, it affirms the deity of Jesus as the Son of God. God speaking, you are my son. Not just a son, but he is the Son of God. He's divine, holy God. Um, he is the one through whom God has revealed him, revealing himself in these last days, as he says in chapter 1. Um, but, but secondly, this psalm is about a king, interestingly enough. Uh, if you go back and read Psalm 2, we won't read the whole thing, but let me just read the verses on each side. It says, verse 6 of Psalms 2, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, 
my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Okay, so in other words, this is, the, this is what his argument here. God appointed Jesus exactly because he was king. Right? That's, that was his intention and choice. He was his son, but also he was his son who would be king. And that's who he chose to be high priest. Uh, he goes on and he says that this was after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, what is that about? Who in the world was Melchizedek? I don't know who he was, but I, I wish I would have had a boy, because I think this would be a really fun name for a boy, Melchizedek. Sad thing is it would get, it would get reduced to Mel, but, which is also a good name, but Melchizedek. Uh, he was uh, a priest that Abra- Abraham offered a tithe to, right, back in the Old Testament. But not only was he a priest, he was also the king of Salem. And so what he's saying here is Jesus was anointed priest not after the order of Aaron, not after the system and structure of Aaron, but after the system or order of Melchizedek as one who would rule as a priest king. Right? And that, that's a, uh, especially for the people hearing this in Jesus' day, this letter possibly was written to a group of, of priests or high priests. This would have been news to them, right? That Jesus, Messiah, was king, but he also fulfills the role as priest, as great high priest. Uh, not on the, on the criteria that they expected, but on a new set of criteria that God ordained for Jesus. Uh, so, on the first qualification, Jesus passes the test. He was appointed to this position by God, not on the basis of his connection with Aaron, but... Um, in a new program, a new order after Melchizedek. Uh, what about the second criteria? Can Jesus, how can Jesus deal gently with us as sinful people when he himself never sinned? Um, doesn't it seem like on this one, Jesus would be disqualified? But at first appearance, it would seem that way. But here's how the author demonstrates that Jesus actually is very qualified on this point as well. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, This passage, these verses give us three reasons why why Jesus is qualified to deal gently with the sinful human beings, Um, in, in spite of the fact that he did not sin. Right? He does not identify with us because he sinned like us. But he can identify with our struggle. He can deal gently with us for three reasons. First of all, uh, because of all that he endured leading up to the cross. Because of the agony of the cross. He says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Um, The cross was the altar where Jesus' life, his body, would be sacrificed 
where he would be killed as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Um, uh, his blood would be poured out, and, and his death was, was a substitution. In other words, we should have been on that cross. And Jesus stepped in and he took our place. He was our perfect substitute for sin. And he took all of its punishment on himself so that we, we can be saved. Right? We don't have to deal with its consequences or punishment. We are set free. Uh, that's what the cross is to us. But what was the cross to Jesus? Uh, for, for Jesus, as these verses show us, the cross was his greatest test of faith, um, and it loomed before him as one of the great and ultimate purposes of his life, but also as a great horror that in his flesh he dreaded and even feared. Uh, it says that this was in the days of his flesh, right? That time period when Jesus came to earth, when the Son of God left heaven and he came to earth and Jesus took on human flesh and blood. A body just like ours. Um, and, and that's what the incarnation is all about. Is that he was fully God and fully man. But here's, here's the problem we have with, often with our understanding of the incarnation. We have this idea, and, and I think this way often, that what happened in the incarnation is that God, eternal God, and all his being came to earth and he took on a physical human body. And uh, kind of like, you know, there's like movies about this. You know, where like aliens come and invade and they need like a human body, right? So they kill some poor sap and they invade his body and they walk around in this body, right? Uh, so that they can be human. And sometimes that's kind of the extent of how we envision the incarnation. That yeah, God took on a body, but he was, he was just God. God in, in human flesh. But actually that's not the doctrine of the incarnation, it's only partly true, right? He did come, he did take on human flesh, he did take on a human body, but Scripture is clear that he also took on fully human nature. Right? We, read it, we, we read it this morning uh, in the reading of Philippians 2, who did not think it was robbery to be equal with God in nature, but who took on the nature of a servant. Right? Uh, he wasn't just God in a body, he was God in humanity. Uh, the Incarnation teaches us that he was uh, fully uh, the nature of God and fully the nature of man. Uh, so that when Jesus went to the cross, he went not only in a human body, but he went with a human nature just like ours. Now, one of the problems for us is sorting out in our own nature what is pure human nature and what's sinful fallen nature. And oftentimes you may feel like the fear and worry and anxiety and agony that you experience is only the result of the fall, only the result of sin. And there's some truth to that because uh, without sin, we probably wouldn't have anything to be afraid of. But the truth is that in Jesus, we see what humanity looked like without a sin nature. And when Jesus went to the cross, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when he knew he was hours away from being nailed to the cross, <clears throat> was he calm? <laughs> was he like, ah, this is no big deal. Ah, what time is it? Ah, a couple more hours. I think I'll take a nap. And is that how he was? It says here that he, uh, he, he cried out to God with a loud voice and with tears. 
Luke puts it this way. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And get this. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. In Jesus' human nature, the cross was a big deal. It was soul-wrenching agony and turmoil for Jesus. Um, and it, it called him to, to wrestle with God deeply and with great torment and turmoil at what stood before him. So what was it about the cross that caused Jesus such agony of soul and turmoil? Why was it so <coughs> uh, difficult for him? And in fact, why was it a turmoil that threatened to actually consume him? Well, certainly, as we think about the cross, the physical torture and pain of the cross would be enough to unravel anybody, right? How many of you, like, freak out when you have to get a shot? (laughs) Or, you know, they're going to do surgery and you're paralyzed with fear because they're going to put you to sleep and do stuff to you while you're, like, completely oblivious to it all and we still get nervous, right? Imagine if you were facing the cross. Um, It was designed to be both extreme torture uh, and inflict the most possible uh, pain and suffering that that a human could endure. That was designed that way. Uh, But it was also designed to be um, as humiliating and degrading as humanly possible. You were hung up, stripped naked in, in, in a very public place as your life eked away in in. in terrible pain and and suffering. Um, That would cause anybody to have great fear um, and and turmoil. Um, But I think for Jesus, there was something even worse than that. Even something more painful and horrific than that. uh, If that was possible. And it is this. Not only was he going to die a terrible, agonizing death, um, but he was going to become the curse for sin. Right? We sang this song this morning. Great words. But do we, do we really think about what these words mean for Jesus? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake he made him to be sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus was not just a sacrifice for sin, but as a substitute in our place, he took sin upon himself. He became sin. I don't know what all that means, but at some level, uh, the terrible stain of sin and the full curse of death invaded Jesus in his body, soul, and spirit. He experienced not not the, the, the guilt of committing sin, but he experienced all the effects of it, the horror of it, the the unholiness of it, 
Uh, and for Jesus, it was horrific because he was light. He was not only fully God, man, but he was fully God. Holy. He hated sin. Right? For all eternity, uh, from, the, from the fall of Adam and Eve, uh, God abhors sin. His natural response to sin is that of wrath and judgment. And now Jesus is going to take that onto himself. It's, 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 it's filth, it's corruption, it's death, it's penalty. Um, and I wish I had words to describe that. And I, I struggled to even comprehend it in my own thought. But for Jesus, this was horrible. Right? It was beyond the horror of the physical suffering of the cross. Uh, knowing that at some point when, when sin so came upon him, at the darkest hour on the cross, his very own father would turn away, unable to look at the sin that covered his, his life. Okay. So, so Jesus felt these horrors. He felt the agony of the cross in ways we probably can never begin to imagine. Um, and how did he get through all that? How did he cope with such agony? Well, it says that he cried out to him who was able to save him from death. In the midst of all that, he still trusted his father. Um, did his father come through? Well, in one level, it would seem not, because <laughs> he went to the cross and he died. Uh, God was able to deliver him from death, but he did not deliver him from the cross. But of course, we know he did ultimately deliver him from death because the curse of death did not stick to Jesus. He took it on himself, but it was not permanent. For us, it would have been permanent. It would have meant eternal death and eternal condemnation. But for Jesus, he overcame. And the Father rose him back to, uh, to new life from the grave, eternal life, where sin and death could no longer touch him. Um, so, so this qualifies Jesus in a very unique way. No, he did not sin. But does he know what sin is? He knows, right? He, he, he knows its full effect as he carried the weight of it upon himself and as he saw the agony of it uh, looming before him on the cross. Um, and specifically, he knows your sin. Okay? Uh, he took your sin on himself uh, and died for it. Second qualification uh, says, although, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Really interesting phrase for Jesus. Uh, and again, um, it's important for us to, to, to really get what Jesus was as a human being. Now, as God, Jesus never had to learn anything, right? He was the creator of the universe. Uh, he was the infinite wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Um, Jesus, uh, until he came to earth, never had to say, wow, I never knew that, right? He knew everything. Uh, but when he comes in human flesh, he takes on human body, human existence, human nature, and he went through the whole deal from birth to death as a, as a person. And so Jesus actually had to learn everything. Right? He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to, you know, take orders from his parents. Um, he had to learn how to do math, I guess. I don't know. Hopefully he didn't have to do algebra, poor guy. 
Um, I don't know what he learned, but he learned stuff. Right? And ultimately it says that he, what he learned uh, was obedience. Right? Uh, this was new for him in his flesh. Right? As the eternal Son of God, Jesus the Son never had any issue about obeying his Father. Right? They were so one in thought and action and will that, that there, was, there wasn't even a question. The Father would decree things and the Son would do it instantly and perfectly. Right? Obedience was automatic. But when he came and took on human flesh, every day he had to make choices about his body and his life to follow God or not. And so he learned obedience. Um, but, uh, but not only that, it says that he... Uh, um, it was, it was a struggle at times, right? It was not always easy, and especially as we see at the cross. As he struggled with the agony of the cross, he wrestled with obedience. Um, and maybe he didn't ever wrestle with whether or not he was going to do God's will or not, but he wrestled with, is this really God's will? Or he didn't know everything. The Spirit revealed to him piece by piece through the Word and through the Revelation of the Spirit, Jesus didn't know everything in his human flesh, right? He set that aside. And so we see him at the cross wrestling. Father, is there some other way? But if this is your will, I submit to it. So can, can Jesus deal gently with you when you face difficult choices? When you are tested and tempted to sin because the choice before you is hard, because you know what God wants, but what you really want is something else. Right? Does Jesus know? He knows, right? Boy, does he know. Third thing. Um, it says that not only did he learn obedience, but that he learned this obedience through suffering. Uh, Jesus never sinned, but he did suffer. Um, and what this means is that his obedience was tested to the fullest possible extent. Right? The greater the cost of obedience, the more difficult the choice. Right? If you feel the Holy Spirit telling you, go to Cold Stone and buy ice cream... For most of us, it's not going to be like, oh, I don't know if I can do that, right? It's going to be like, oh, yeah, let's go, right? Uh, a lot of God's commands are joy. Uh, but, but when his command involves suffering, uh, maybe extreme suffering, when he asks us to do things that we do not like, it's hard, Right? Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Uh, his obedience got stretched and tested to the extreme limit. Um, you know, I often hear people uh, who are not believers, uh, or maybe who are believers, who have gone through great loss, who have suffered very tragic things in their life, Accuse God, God, you can't possibly know what I'm going through. Or you can't possibly know what it feels like to lose a child or to be uh, uh, disabled by some terrible accident or debilitating disease, to be confined to a wheelchair or to have your whole life ruined and turned upside down. God, you can't possibly know what that feels like. 
But Jesus would answer, yes, I know exactly what it feels like. I have suffered all those things. Maybe not the exact circumstance, but the suffering, the agony of it, he has experienced fully. But there's no person on the earth who can accuse God that he does not know what they feel. He knows. And so he is fully qualified for the job. Uh, Not because he sinned, but because he suffered. And he knows what we are going through. He knows how hard it is. Um, So he wraps up with these words in verse 9. He says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Uh, Jesus was made perfect. It doesn't mean there was something wrong with Jesus that had to be fixed. It doesn't mean fixed. It doesn't mean he had a character flaw that needed to be straightened out. What it means is that he was perfected for this job as high priest through his suffering and through the agony of the cross. Right? He needed to experience those things so that he could deal gently with the wayward and the ignorant, with the sinful and the weak. Um with those who are afraid of the future, for those who are terrified at the circumstances that they are in, uh, to deal gently with those who have great loss and disappointment in their life. Um, Does Jesus care for the discouraged and the depressed? Does he care about the super stressed out? Yes, he cares. Uh, And he has promised to deal gently with you. But you have to go to him. He's the high priest who's sitting waiting. He's king on the throne, but he's also our high priest who's waiting for us to come to him. And he wants to deal gently with you. uh, And he will give you understanding and compassion. But his goal is not only just to listen compassionately and to empathize. Uh, He's not just going to say to you, wow, you know, I feel your pain. Right? He promises something even more because he says this. He says, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, he doesn't promise to take away every cross, but he promises to raise you up from the dead and to save you. Right? In the end, uh, he saves us ultimately by giving us the heart to obey him. Um. He learned obedience through all that he suffered. And likewise, we will learn to obey him as we suffer, but also as we come to find his compassion and his grace. But we've got to go to him as our priest, right? We've got to learn what it's like to experience his gentle dealing with us. He does not condemn. Uh, He cares and he understands. Uh, But we've got to go to him and find his help. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.